Lord, I thank you for my brother in Christ and his desire to not only know Jesus, but to make Jesus known. And Lord, I pray that you would fill him with the power of your Holy Spirit, that in everything that he does and everything he takes part in, that the Holy Spirit of Almighty God would infuse each particular person and each particular thing. God, so I pray for Holy Spirit anointing over Paul. Lord, I pray that you would give grace not only to him and his team, but those they'll be ministering to. Lord, especially I pray for those new church leaders, that God, they would be strengthened in their ability to minister the gospel of Christ where they are. And Lord, I pray for those of evangelism efforts in new villages, that God, you would give open doors for the gospel of Christ to be heard and received by faith in those who have yet to believe. And so we ask for a harvest of souls in this effort. And Lord, we pray not only for Paul, but we also pray for his family. God, as he's gone, I pray that you would meet all of their needs and Lord, strengthen them, encourage them, let them be a part of the joy in sending Paul to the nations of the earth. Lord, we love you and we pray, not only blessing over his trip, but also on our study together. Give us eyes as we look at your word to understand the truth of the gospel of Jesus. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. God bless you, Dr. Paul. Would you... uh... So if you guys have your Bibles, would you turn to Galatians chapter 6? This morning we're going to be finishing our verse-by-verse study of the book of Galatians. And I know some of you are curious as to where we'll be going next. And I'll just let you know my plan right now is that we would spend the summer on a couple smaller series. I think in the month of June we're going to be doing a short series on the church and what it is to be a part of a local fellowship of believers. And then in the uh, end of summer, the beginning of fall, um, I believe the Lord's laid on my heart to do a verse-by-verse study of the book of Daniel. And so I would ask you to be praying about the book of Daniel, um, praying for God to give clarity in that study. I'm really excited as to what God's shown me so far, and I look forward to seeing what he'll teach us, Lord willing, if that's indeed the direction that he causes us to go. But right now, we're going to finish up this series we've been in for a total of about six months, the book of Galatians, and we'll be wrapping up this final verse. But before we read our text, I just kind of give you a little insight into what my last few weeks have looked like. Over the last several weeks, my son Logan and I have been rebuilding an old engine to go in his 30-year-old truck. And in case you don't know, some things have changed in the last 30 years. (laughs) A lot has changed in particular about engines and motors and car parts and computers and all of those things. And there are scores of new parts that you can put on old engines that'll make them last longer and run better. And even most importantly, get better fuel economy, which we pray will actually happen. But here's the reality as I've been looking into upgrading Logan's engine. There are some parts that you can use that are going to help the engine, but there are no parts that are compatible with every single engine. Here's what that means. There are actually some parts that if you put on the wrong engine will cause a catastrophic failure of that engine. And and in layman's terms, what that means is the motor will blow up and that's never a good thing, especially for a home mechanic. How how do you think it would feel if Logan and I put all this time and energy into rebuilding that engine only to put it in his old Bronco, turn the key and it explodes right there in front of us. Church, you need to pray for your pastor, okay? Because if that happens, yeah, it'll be a great sermon illustration but you'll find me in the corner somewhere sucking my thumb. But that's not the point. 
I'm trying my best as he and I work on this engine together to research every single part to figure out, double check whether or not that particular component is compatible with the engine we're trying to build. You know why? Because I don't want to waste all this time and effort only for it to result in a catastrophic failure. And whether or not you realize it, that's really what Paul has been doing in this letter on behalf of the Galatians. What he's doing is he's writing a letter to these believers and then us in turn. And what he's doing is he's pointing out something that is entirely incompatible with true Christianity. He's helping us understand something that would avoid a catastrophic failure in the end. In other words, something that would help us avoid the catastrophe of spending eternity separated from God in hell. He shows us something that's incompatible with true Christianity. And before we read our text, I want to tell you what he's going to say so that you can be looking for it here in our text. It's actually the big idea for this morning. The big idea is this, the pride of legalism is completely incompatible with the glory of Christ's cross. The pride of legalism is completely incompatible with the glory of Christ's cross. Now, with that in mind, let's see that in this text of Scripture. Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. He says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Stop right there. Paul would have likely had access to a scribe who would have been able to write his letter as he dictated it. And this scribe, as a professional secretary of sorts would have been able to write in very nice, clean, legible handwriting. But here at the end, Paul takes the quill in his own hand. He writes with his own hand and he makes large letters. And there's lots of uh, uh, theories about why he's writing with large letters. Some think it's because he had a physical issue with his eyes that he mentions earlier in the book. And so he has to write in large print so he can see. Some people think that it's his way of emphasizing, like putting the, the bold letter characters together so that you could see clearly that there's emphasis in this. But whatever the reason, he's taking this quill, he's signing in his own hand, sort of like a signature, so that he can authorize this truly is an authentic letter from the Apostle Paul and not an imposter. And the reason that's important is because Paul was an apostle who had a unique authority from Christ. We talked about it at the beginning of this letter. And as a unique authority that he had, he was able to identify false teachers and false doctrine and clarify the truth of the gospel in response, which is exactly what he's done in this letter. And that's what he does in our text. So he's writing with his own hands. Continue reading verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only and in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. I love that phrase. Let's be done with this forever, church. For I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. 
Amen. This is the word of God for us. And I pray that you see it in there. The pride of legalism is completely incompatible with the glory of Christ's cross. That's exactly what Paul has just said in this text. And I hope you noticed in those verses what he's doing. He's he's drawing a contrast. He's contrasting false teachers and the false gospel that they represent with true believers, including himself and the believers here at Galatia, with the gospel that they believe. And what he's doing as he contrasts those two groups, those two things, is he's actually exposing the heart behind both of them. He's showing us that there's a heart desire behind the false gospel and there's a heart desire behind the true gospel And those hearts are completely incompatible with one another. You see, boasting is at the heart of both. Those false teachers desire to boast in themselves. The the false gospel of legalism has as its desire a desire to boast. To boast in self, in flesh, in your own work. And the true gospel also has boasting as its heart. But the true gospel doesn't boast in us. We don't boast in our work. We don't boast in ourselves. Those who believe the true gospel boast only in Jesus and his cross. And so Paul says, because you can't boast in both at the same time, the false gospel of legalism is completely incompatible with the true gospel of Jesus. That's what he's teaching, and that's what he's summarizing about this entire letter. And so what I want to do is just dig into that reality a little bit at a time from this text. Let's start with that first idea. The heart of legalism is pride. The heart of legalism is pride. You see that verses 12 and 13, Paul's talking about those false teachers who had come to the churches of Galatia. And he basically summarizes their teaching in a couple different ways. In verse 12, he says, they, talking about the false teachers, would force you to be circumcised. Now, we've talked about this quite a few times through the study of Galatians, but these Jewish false teachers were saying that Gentile Christians had to adopt the practice of circumcision in order to be right with God. And if you'll remember, circumcision was part of God's law for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. So in essence, the false teachers were basically saying, you have to do the good works of the law in addition to believing the truth about Jesus if you want to be right with God. We called that the Jesus plus version of the gospel. It's the work of Jesus plus the work you add that makes you right with God. In other words, they were saying you as a follower of Christ have to keep all of these laws if you want God to be pleased with you. And that's why we call it legalism. Legalism is focused on law. Legalism creates a list of laws that we have to keep. A list of do's, a list of don'ts. Sometimes it's a really, really long list. Sometimes there's just a few crucial laws on the list, but there's always a list of rules in legalism that you have to follow if you want God to be happy with you. And legalism says that list basically acts like a secret code to get God to love you and accept you. And it doesn't matter what those laws are. So long as we see them as rules we have to keep 
In order to be right with God, we have legalism in our heart. And you might remember a couple months ago, I gave you a little test to help us determine whether or not the false teaching of legalism had been creeping into our hearts. I call it the well-I test. Here's what I mean by that. If somebody says, why do you think God is pleased with you? Or why do you think that you're in a good relationship with God right now? Or even more importantly, if someone says, why do you believe you'll go to heaven when you die? If you respond with the phrase, well, I, and then you add some good thing you've done as your reason to believe that God is pleased with you or that you're acceptable to God or you'll go to heaven when you die, that's an indicator that legalism has crept into your theology. It's in your heart. So if you say, well, I was baptized when I was 10, or well, I attend church most weeks, or well, I give money, or I serve people, or well, I try to be a good person. Well, I, I, me, me. Do you see the heart of all of that? Legalism puts us at the center of our Christianity. Because legalism is all about what we do for God. But do you know what the problem with legalism is? The problem is we can't do enough. Even more, we've already blown it. We've already broken God's law. That's exactly why Paul points out that not even the teachers of the false gospel of legalism are able to keep the whole law. Look at verse 13. He says, for even those who are circumcised do not keep God's law for themselves. When it comes to keeping the law of God, the thing you most need to be aware of, friend, is that you've already broken God's law. Romans chapter 3 says all of us have sinned. Romans 3 says that all of us are unrighteous, that none of us are righteous. No, not one. We've all gone our own way. We've all strayed and broken God's rules. That's actually the reason why God gave us the law. He gave us the law, not so we could keep it and earn a right relationship with God. God gave us the law so that he could expose that we've already broken God's law. You might remember when we studied chapter three, however many months ago that was, I gave you this illustration. Imagine you were a terrible driver but you thought you were a really good driver. Anybody married to somebody like that? Emily, do not raise your hand. (laughs) She does believe that, that's the truth. Uh, Imagine you didn't know how bad a driver you were. How would I be able to prove just how bad you are at driving. Imagine I put you in a huge field that was a big pavement parking lot, but no lines whatsoever, just a big, empty, blank parking lot. You would be able to drive to your heart's content, but you would never know just how good a driver you are if there aren't any lines. You might be swerving all over the place. You might be driving erratically. It would be meaningless because there would be no indicator whether you were able or not to stay inside the lines. But imagine Imagine I drew a really difficult course for you to drive through, a really difficult place for you to go that would really test your driving skills. In essence, imagine I placed you in the public's parking lot across the street, right? That's the illustration. That would test your skills and your sanctification. You would be able to see whether or not you had crossed the lines. Here's what you need to know about that. Those lines wouldn't make you a terrible driver. Those lines would expose whether you were a terrible driver. And that's how the law of God is intended to work in our lives. We would not know that we're sinners if God did not draw the lines to show us. 
And when we step over the line, that's not an indicator that anyone but us has failed. So when it comes to the law of God, let me tell you this, friends. When you look at the rules, whether they're the Ten Commandments or the entirety of God's law in the Old Testament or any other command that God has given us, the best thing you'll ever do is simply acknowledge that you aren't good enough in your own power to be pleasing to God. And in humility, fall before him and simply say, God, be merciful to me. I'm a terrible driver. I'm a sinner. Guys, but here's what you need to know. Legalism doesn't see it that way. And legalism doesn't want you to see it that way either. Legalistic people are like arrogant drivers who think they actually got what it takes to earn God's blessings. And that's why Paul points out that their heart is not just a difference of opinion on how to read the Old Testament. Their heart is pride that would twist the law of God for their own purposes. Notice how he says that in verse 13. He says, this is the reason why false teachers do everything they do in terms of legalism. He says, that they may boast in your flesh. Legalistic people don't care about God's word. They don't care about God's glory. They don't care about people. They care about themselves at the core. They use God's law. They use God's glory. They use God's people. They use everything in their life for one particular reason, to boast in themselves. The root of legalism is pride. And Paul doesn't just leave it there because it's too important to not dig into. He gives us two ways that pride is expressed in our lives. Look at verse 12 again. He says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. You see it there? You see the two ways that pride in religion is expressed through legalism, it's the first one there. He says they want to make a good showing in the flesh and they want to avoid persecution. The two expressions of pride that are a part of legalism are the desire for praise from people and the desire for acceptance from the world. If you think about that for just a second, you'll see how those two things are rooted deeply in pride. Pride is focused on ourselves, right? So pride is all about us. It's all about you. So pride loves for self to be praised by other people. Pride loves it when people think that we're great, right? It loves when people applaud our work. That's why legalism is so attractive to religious people. It's because it allows them an opportunity to show how great they are, especially compared to all of the sinners in their community. I'm so great. Look at all the religious things I do. Look at all the worldly things I don't do. Legalistic people are ready to tell you every great thing they did this week. They probably posted it on Facebook. Legalistic people are concerned with self. And they have this inward sense of superiority over the rest of the sinners in this world. So much so that they want to sign up for a religion that's all about how, showing how great they are. It's called legalism, even if it's officially labeled Christianity. Legalistic people love for people to applaud them because they're proud. But pride doesn't just crave applause. Pride craves acceptance. 
Pride doesn't want to be persecuted. It doesn't want to suffer. It doesn't want to be rejected. You know why? Because proud people think they deserve better than that. Proud people say, I deserve a life that's better than persecution or deprivation or suffering. You know why? I'm me. (laughs) I'm wonderful. No one should treat me poorly. No one should reject or despise me. Don't they know who I am? Pride desires praise from people and acceptance from the world. And what I want you to see by pointing those things out is this. It is really easy for us to sit in a room like this and say we don't struggle with legalism. Largely because we know that you wouldn't want to admit struggling with legalism. But it's a total different thing for us to say we don't struggle with pride. I'm going to tell you, friend, we are all prone to pride. Pride is the father of all our sin. And I just want to take a moment and ask you to invite the Spirit of God to expose whether or not pride is creeping in your heart. Don't answer these out loud, but let me just ask you a couple questions I pray the Spirit would help you answer. Do you inwardly want to impress people by the things you do? Do you want people to brag about your religious accomplishments? Do you feel a sense of inward superiority over the people around you who fall into sin? Do you want to be seen or heard during worship so that people would notice something about you rather than focus simply on Christ? Do you think that you deserve a comfortable persecution-free life in this world. Church, I pray that you would see that the heart behind legalism is pride, and it's pride that is incompatible with the gospel of Jesus. The only sacrifice that is pleasing to God is a broken and contrite spirit that cries out, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. But Paul's letter doesn't just focus on legalism. It clarifies the gospel. And that's what he's doing next in our text. He shows that the heart behind the true gospel is also boasting. It's just not boasting in ourselves. It isn't glory to us when you come to the gospel. It's glory to Jesus. That's the center of Christianity. Look at verse 14. He says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the true Israel of God. The second thing we see in our text is that the glory of the gospel is the cross of Jesus Christ. The center of legalism is self Legalism focuses on what we do for God, but true Christianity focuses on what Jesus has done for us, and it makes its boast the work of Jesus at his glorious cross. And I want to show you a couple ways that Paul teaches that truth. Look at verse 16 again. He says, and this is a really great phrase, and as for all who walk by this rule, do you guys see the play on words that Paul's using here? He says, like legalists, true Christians also live a rule-based life, but we have only one defining rule. What's that rule? Look back at verse 15. He tells us, for neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, 
but a new creation. Do you hear that? The one big rule of true Christianity is that we put zero confidence in anything we do or ever have done to make us acceptable with God. The only thing that counts, this is the rule of true Christianity, the only thing that counts is being a new creation, verse 15 says. What does he mean by a new creation? Well, he says almost the exact same thing back in chapter 5, verse 6. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But here he changes the phrase a little bit. He says, only faith working through love. So instead of a new creation, in this verse he says, faith working through love is what counts. So the new creation is the equivalent to something that happens to us through faith that produces love in our lives. So what is that thing that happens through faith that makes a new creation in us? Well, the theme verse for Galatians 2.20 tells us, or Galatians tells us in 2.20, says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, friend, when you live by faith in Jesus, here's what the gospel tells you. That old person that you used to be before Christ is no longer alive The miracle of miracles has happened. The old person that you used to be when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, that old person was united to Christ at his cross and was crucified with Jesus. That's how your sin can be forgiven because it was united to the cross of Jesus and you bear it no more. Christ bore it for you on the cross. And not only are you united to the death of Jesus, Galatians 2.20 says you're united to the life of Jesus. Jesus literally and miraculously will live in and through anyone who will trust in him by faith. And so that's why he says we are a new creation. It's Christ in us, not us living for Christ that defines our life. Now look then at the rest of verse 16. When you're a new creation in Christ, it says, and as for all who walk by this rule, who put no confidence in any work they've done, but trust in Jesus and his work at the cross and his continuing work in their life. And for all who walk by that rule, he says, look at peace and mercy be upon them. And upon the true Israel of God. Here's the good news of the gospel. Those who trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior receive mercy and peace from God because Jesus paid the price for their sin at the cross. He brought us into a restored relationship of peace with God as our Father through his sacrifice. And what's even more, he says, those who trust in Jesus are the Israel of God. Now, here's what you need to know about that phrase. He isn't talking about the, the, the physical, national nation of Israel. He's talking about anyone who's willing to trust in Jesus, that they become a part of the true people of God. That's what he said in chapter 3, verse 14. He said, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to, to the Gentiles, to us who aren't Jews, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So you guys know the story. The Jews were the physical descendants of Abraham, but they're not the ones who will inherit all that God has promised to Abraham. God's blessing comes to anyone 
Jew and Gentile, who's willing to place their faith and trust in Jesus. So the true Israel of God are those who trust in Jesus and Jesus alone to save them, no matter how they were born or in what nation they were born. That's what he says at the end of chapter three, verses 28 and 29. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Guys, the true heirs of God, the true people of God, the true Israel of God are all who trust in Jesus. And I want you to think about how Paul's using that phrase. He's getting one last dig in to the Jewish false teachers. They were trying to make Gentiles live like Jews, saying that's how they would be right with God. But Paul says the true Israel of God is comprised of any and all who will simply trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It isn't people who keep the Jewish law of God who are the Israel of God. It's those who know they can't keep God's law. So they trust in Jesus to do for them what they can't do for themselves. Those are the true people that God blesses. That's the Israel of God. And because Jesus has made us people who are part of his family, who are heirs of all that he's promised, who have mercy and grace and peace by his cross. Paul can say what he says then in verse 14. Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, boasting is the heart of Christianity, but not like the boasting of legalism. We boast in nothing but Jesus Christ and his cross. The old rugged cross is the emblem of God's love and his mercy and his grace and his peace. It's the reminder of how seriously our God takes sin and how thoroughly our God has already punished our sin through the death of his son. The cross of Jesus is our only boast because the work of Jesus is our only hope. Church, I cannot make that more clear. Our only boast is Jesus and his cross. You know what that means? It means we don't boast in anything else. We don't boast in our religious work. We don't boast in self-help programs or social justice work or church traditions or church programs. We don't boast in denominations or political action or political alignment. We don't boast in our pastors or our attendance numbers or the amount of money we give to missions or feeding the hungry or clothing the homeless. As truly good as some of those things be, none of those things are our boast. We don't boast in anything but Jesus Christ and his glorious cross. If you are new around here, there's something you need to know. If you're looking for an emphasis on religious work or tradition or self-help or social justice or church growth or slick marketing or seven steps to be a better parent or a spouse or a citizen, by God's grace, you will not find those things here. We have one message I only preach one sermon. Ask anybody who's been here a while. We only have one boast. Our boast is Jesus Christ and his glorious cross. 
And when the day comes, and it is coming, that it costs us our tax-exempt status as a church, that it costs us our freedom, that it costs us our lives, may it never be that we would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, only Jesus, is the boast of God's people. And in order for that to be the case, Paul says two critical things have to be clear in your heart. He mentions them there at the end of verse 14. That's how we'll close today. He says, by which, by the cross of Jesus, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He says, when Jesus is truly your own boast, the world will be crucified to us and we will be crucified to the world. What's he mean? Well, just think about crucifixion. Crucifixion was a brutal, horrific, deadly affair. It meant having nails driven through your hands and your feet. It meant being despised and rejected and scorned. And that's what Paul means when he says that the world is crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, he says, when Jesus is truly your only boast, you need to realize the world has been crucified to you. You know what he means? He means you despise and you reject the system of this world that's opposed to God's design. You're not a friend to it. The false ideologies of this world aren't benign. They're evil. So you despise and you reject them. You despise and reject the value system of this world that values everything and anything but Jesus above all. You despise and reject the false gods that govern this world and hold people captive in darkness. The world is crucified to you, which means you aren't a friend of the world. And he also says at the same time, you are crucified to the world. He means you are more than willing to be despised and rejected by this world. You're more than willing to be hated and persecuted When your only boast is Jesus and his cross, you believe you are already dead and you died at the cross of Christ so you can endure suffering for the sake of Jesus in this world. That's what Paul is referring to in verse 17 when he says, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. He's saying, I've already endured scars on this body so many times that I, I, I carry them around everywhere that I go. I was beaten for being a follower of Jesus, and he was willing to suffer. Why? Why? Because Jesus is worth it. Because Jesus was his only boast. Why? Because Jesus was his only hope. So God forbid he would ever turn his back on Jesus. God forbid that he would ever choose the easier path of least resistance. God forbid he would ever try to strike a friendship with the world in order to make his life easier. Jesus is his only hope, so Jesus is his only boast, and so he glories in the cross even as he suffers in this world. How does that happen? It happens when your heart is humbled before God and you see Jesus as your only hope, your glorious hope. A hope you would never find in the things of this world. And you gladly leave the small and fleeting, 
temporary pleasures of this world to cling to the old rugged cross of Jesus. So church, may it never be that you would boast in your religion, that you would boast in any good work you've ever done. May it never be that you would boast by comparing yourself to the sinner next door or the one in the seat right next to you. May it never be that you would boast except in the cross of Jesus. May it be that you would leave this place and boast in the cross of Jesus. May it be that Christ would be on your lips and his cross would ever be in your heart. May it be that you would enter this world on a mission to make Christ known. Not a mission to appease and make friends with the evil of this world, but to overcome evil by the good and glory of the cross of Jesus. May it be that you would only boast and always boast in the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the heart of Galatians. And so let me end by asking you two very important questions. Number one, who are you trusting in? Jesus or self? If you were to die today and you were to stand before God, and if you were to die today, you would stand before God. What is your hope that you are right with God? What is your hope that heaven would be your home? What is your confidence that you would be accepted by God? Jesus or anything else that you've ever done? There's only one hope, and his name is Jesus. Are you trusting in Jesus only Jesus? If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, I'm going to be down front in just a moment. We're going to invite anyone who desires prayer or has a spiritual need to come and pray with one of our pastors or prayer partners. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, I pray this is the day that you bow before Jesus and receive the glory of eternal life through faith in him. Who are you trusting in Jesus or self? The second question is related to that. Who are you boasting in? Jesus or self? What is your boast? What is your desire? What is your source of identity and pride? The value system of this world, the affluence of this world, the acceptance of this world, the praise of people who think you're great? Are you boasting in self or are you boasting in Jesus? May it never be that you would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads? Let's enter into a time of prayer. Father, would you help us see that we were made to boast? You created us. You created us to take pride in something, to praise something, to boast in something. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see how that's all gone wrong as we boast in ourselves. As we take pride in our religion, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to have humble, repentant hearts, knowing that that heart of pride is incompatible with the true gospel of Christ. And Lord, stir in us, I pray this morning, a deep yearning, a desire 
boast in Jesus, to truly believe that our only hope is Christ, and so our only boast is Christ. Or may we cling to Jesus and his cross. And God, I do pray that in the days that lie ahead, as this world grows more dark and difficult, as brokenness, persecution may be more and more a part of our experience. Lord, I pray that we would be people who love Jesus more than any other thing, who would never bend our knee to the expedience of being accepted by our world. And I pray as long as we have breath in our lungs, as long as we have life in our bodies, that our only boast would be Jesus in Jesus crucified. Keep us faithful, keep us from stumbling, cause us to be a bright and shining light to the glory of Jesus, Lord. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name.